So it's time to get out my soapbox. Communications at a nonprofit is not just about getting press. It's not just about whether your website has great images and is easy to navigate. It's not just about whether you have a logo that wins awards. It's not about your annual report. And communications is not over there. It's not something you do or don't have the money to do. Lastly, it's something you've actually got to do. You cannot say, quote, I would focus on this if only I had enough money. End quote. Trust me, I've heard that quote. I teach a class at the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania called Nonprofit Communication Strategy. I talk about what communications really is in a nonprofit and its centrality to a thriving nonprofit. Today, I am joined by a woman who makes her living helping nonprofits to be more effective. And in this, we are indeed kindred spirits. My focus is on leadership. My guest and her team are all about communications, branding, positioning, and all of that as central to the success of your work. She says that nonprofits need to think about communications as a utility, like the electrical current that runs through your home. I'm hoping that our conversation will be a shock to your system, a, a shock of the good kind. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Sarah Durham founded Big Duck in 1994 to help nonprofits increase their visibility, raise money, and achieve their missions. Today, she uses her deep experience in nonprofit communications to guide the entire Big Duck team. The author of Brand Raising, How Nonprofits Raise Visibility and Money Through Smart Communications, her expertise has been borrowed by NPR, the Chronicle of Philanthropy Guide Star, and many more. She is a sought-after speaker on topics such as branding, fundraising, and other nonprofit communications topics. Her book, Brand Raising, is a good one. I've read it. You can find it on Amazon. It should be in your library. Sarah is a total nonprofit communication nerd. She was named one of the most influential women in technology by Fast Company in 2010 an adjunct professor at NYU's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. Sarah teaches strategic communications to other aspiring nonprofit nerds. Sarah also serves as the vice chair of the National Brain Tumor Society's Board of Directors. Sarah, welcome to my kindred spirit and fellow nonprofit nerd. Yay. Thanks, Joan. Great to be here with you. <laughs> <laughs> so... I don't know why I ask this question, but I do to every single person I bring on my podcast. I like to begin by asking all my guests, okay, you're 13 years old, you're at a family dinner party, it's a big group, it's relatives, it's annoying aunts and uncles, cousins, and they ask that question, so Sarah, what do you want to be when you grow up? And a follow-up, would they be surprised that your life has taken the path that it's taken? starting your own business and this business in particular? Well, you know, if I could go back in time to when I was 13, you know, I, I'm, I'm um, the daughter of two people who were in advertising and I grew up in advertising and communications in, uh, in the sort of, you know, the 80s when it was just post Mad Men era. And I don't think I would have said I want to be in advertising, but I probably did know I want to be in communications and 
I don't think it would be that surprising. I mean, I, I think my journey has been um, a somewhat windy one, as they are for all of us. But ultimately, I love I love the power of communications. That's what you know, what fires me up. Would they be surprised that you run your own business? That you went that you went the entrepreneurial route? I don't think so. I'm, I'm both of my parents were entrepreneurs, and I'm a native New Yorker. And you know, New York tends to be an entrepreneurial town. So. Uh, so probably not. <laughs> um, so I, um, I think it's probably important. Uh, you, ha- your organization has an unusual name. I actually interviewed a really interesting guy named Michael Bungay Stanier from Toronto, who runs an, an organization, a company called Box of Crayons, and I love the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it evokes lots and lots of different things about creativity and possibility. And, uh, and we talked on our podcast in that podcast about, um, about coaching and managing and coaching. It was very interesting, actually. Um, would you talk for just a minute about big duck and, um, sort of why is your, why is your organization called that? And just a, you know, quick, your quick elevator pitch about what your organization does. Yeah, sure. Okay, so why are we called Big Duck? Well, when I started Big Duck in 1994, communications and branding and all that kind of stuff was really not something the nonprofit sector thought about a lot. But in the for-profit world, we saw all kinds of interesting creative firms at the time. I remember one called Mad Dogs and Englishmen using these really creative names to to communicate that they were going to be different and help you tackle problems in different ways. And so I started... Um, I started my business with a branding exercise that's not unlike some of the ones we lead today and and people like Sean Gibbons at the Communications Network, who you've interviewed, talk about about personality. And and we articulated the personality we we wanted. It It was fun and friendly and creative, and the name Big Duck emerged from that. Here we are over 23 years later, and, um, and essentially we work only with nonprofit organizations, and the focus of our work is helping them do three things, build strong brands, strong campaigns, and strong communications teams. We think all three of those things are essential ingredients for an organization to use communications as a strategic tool to achieve its mission. Uh, I remember in that podcast with Sean Gibbons, which is also available on iTunes and also on my website at joangary.com, and that's with two R's in Gary. Um, uh, Sean talked about how he um, actually gave, they actually talked about their website as having a personality and they came up with a celebrity to best uh, sort of... (laughs) <laughs> they, talk about, they talk about Helen Mirren. And yeah. actually, that, that's an exercise that, that I think is you know, not just applicable for your website, it's applicable for the voice of your organization, right? So many organizations um, focus on, on, on the brand or the personality or the tone and style of an initiative, but actually neglect the organizational voice. And I think that whole personality exercise is, is really helpful and useful at the organizational level, too. I totally agree. So, um, so let's not uh, bury the lead. Nonprofits, especially, <clears throat> excuse me, especially smaller organizations, see communications as something you do if you have enough money. And you talk about, as I said in the intro, you talk about communications 
as a utility, as central to nonprofit success, and as, as central to success as electricity is central to your home. So these are two different constructs, right? I do communications if I have enough money <clears throat> versus communications is like current in your organization. Help people understand your paradigm. Yeah, well, I think it's really important to remember that we are living in, we are a generation and we're living in a time when communications is undergoing radical changes. We're in the middle of a, of a digital revolution and what it means to communicate um, both internally and externally is, is changing really fast. And if we went back in time 20 years and we right. looked at communications in most nonprofits, what we would probably find is, is what today would be called a PR team or a media relations team. We'd see people writing press releases and trying to get you know, coverage if, if, if they had that kind of a role at all. Um, I think we still see nonprofits like that, don't we? We we do, and I would say that's just a hangover of a of an old old time. It's not necessarily a particularly effective effective strategy. Right. What we see more often, and I think in these organizations you're talking about, who say, um, you know, I don't really have the uh, the the time or the the capacity to do communications right, is um, kind of tactics driven way of thinking about communications. I think those are people who are thinking about communications as getting that newsletter done, getting that in report out, making a flyer for the thing, producing collateral for an event. And yes, those are important things to get done, but I wouldn't say that that's all communications is or really even the most valuable part of communications. Um, I think there's a lot more to it. So, so this idea of communications as a utility is really about thinking about how you can kind of literally light up your organization from the time you get together around a strategic planning process or an organizational development process to how you communicate with each other internally to bring that to life and how you get people outside of your organization to become aware of your work and then move systematically into the organization, get to know you, find a home for themselves in your organization and, and at the sort of top of the ladder of engagement become advocates for the issues you work on and, and ideally for your organization as their, their home within that issue. Right. And I, I generally find that people use a ton of different terms when they talk about communications and, uh, and there is not a shared understanding of those terms at all. Um, I I Amen. have been I have been a board member that has said our organization needs to do a better job marketing. But when you tease that out and you ask six different board members what that means, one of them will say we're not quoted in the press enough. One of them will say I think our website is really ugly. One of them will say our logo looks like to skiers, or you know, he's like, like <laughs> it's, and so I think, you know, I like to try to be really practical for listeners um, who take a half hour or so to listen to these podcasts. So I, I feel like I have you, uh, I have you for this half hour. I think we should treat you a little bit like a live glossary. So um, uh, I don't think that if somebody asked at the age of thirteen if I. W uh, I, I don't think I would have said that I wanted to be a game show host, although it probably would have been in the back of my head. <laughs> so let's think about this 
as kind of a lightning rod on, around on a game show. And let me throw some, let me throw some words out at you and, and see if your definition resonates for the listeners. How's that? Great. And can I, can I riff a little bit on each definition? You totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no like buzzer or anything like that. <laughs> You're not going to gun um, me out. No, right. I'm not. All right, so no, this is no time limit on this. Although if we run out of time, I'll be the first to let you know. So let's talk about what do you mean when you talk about branding? So I would say branding is about your organization's voice and how it's perceived. And um, there's been some good changes in the nonprofit sector. Most organizations don't just associate brand with logo anymore. It's a lot more than visual elements. It's your organization's voice and how it's perceived. Okay. And voice. <laughs> so now that's, I'm just adding a word. What are you talking, what do you mean by an organization's voice? The cumulative way you express who you are. So that may be your voice as an organization may be composed of um, messaging or, or, or storytelling devices you use, visual components. It might, your voice might also be defined or expressed through other assets you have, like a very dynamic leader on your team who, who represents your organization as a spokesperson. Um, so all those things together become a kind of a voice, tell, tell, the, uh, tell the story of the organization. So, um, so I'm now I'm riffing, aren't I? Um, so when we talk about voice, is there a connection between voice and authenticity? Yes, uh, there absolutely should be. And actually, it's I would say that the this question of authenticity comes up as a concern, like, um, like what if my organization creates a brand identity or articulates its voice in a way that's inauthentic? And, and generally, I don't see that happening a lot. Where I do see it happening is organizations that are decidedly unhip or unedgy, trying to, uh, trying to be hipper and edgier. <laughs> but, um, but your voice should be an expression of who you really truly are. That's one of the reasons I like I like that word is that you know you you don't want to you don't want to pretend to be somebody or something you're not. Right, and we'll come we'll come back to it in a minute because I think, um, you know, I, I I mean you must think about this as it relates to your own business, right, and your own brand, and I I do the same with mine, and um. But I, I often, I also feel that I have a very, very clear sense of who my audience is, as I think you do as well. And let's put a pin in audience and come back to it, okay. um, because I do think that the the clearer you are about your audience, um, the more capably you can uh, brand and uh, the next word that's coming up, which is position your organization. So let's go to. Positioning for 400, Alex. <laughs> so a lot of people think of positioning as how you fit into a peer landscape. In other words, right. you know, other people in your space are over here and we're over there and that's our positioning. I would say that's a part of positioning, but another really key part of positioning is defining the big idea you want to own in the minds of your target audiences. So when I, I often use examples from the for-profit world that people are really familiar with. If I say Staples, most people think office supplies. If I say Starbucks, people think, you know, pricey coffee. Um, when I say FedEx, you think 
overnight delivery. That's positioning. It's about, it's about owning a, uh, an idea in people's minds that you constantly or consistently reinforce. And we've seen some organizations, you know, in this sort of when you, when you look at the big blue chip nonprofits um, in America or internationally, um, many of them are doing a really good job establishing positioning. Organizations like Red Cross, who um, conjure up a quick association with disaster relief, um, generate millions of dollars a year because that's what pops up in our mind when there's a disaster. Or, um, or organizations like Make-A-Wish or March of Dimes, they're strongly allied around a very simple, big idea. Although actually, <clears throat> March of Dimes is a is a case study in and of itself as a complete and utter pivot, right? Yeah. There's an organization that started uh, specifically to find a cure for polio and has managed, uh, there's a remarkable story actually about how March of Dimes has pivoted and still maintained a real relevance in, uh, in the work that it does. Yeah. With low, low birth weight. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's really, um, it's really admirable. Um, okay. So here's the bigger word marketing. Mm, yeah, and I, I've had some really fun conversations with people, and I'd love to get into this with you about the definition of marketing versus the definition of communications. Um, when right. I when I teach at NYU, I, I have half a class on this topic alone. I would define marketing as um, a function that's mostly outbound oriented. That is that is largely in service of generating new relationships or shallow relationships. Um, so, so if we were in a for-profit company today, right. we would probably describe activities in terms of outbound or marketing and inbound or sales. Usually those two functions are, are distinguished from each other in a for-profit. In the nonprofit sector, I think we often use the word marketing, though, um, interchangeably with communications. And I see communications as bigger than marketing and including marketing, but, um, but communications to me is bigger and more valuable because it, uh, first of all, it includes internal relationships, interpersonal relationships. Communications are central in those places. And if you're not communicating well inside your organization, chances are you're not communicating well outside your organization. So I I think that internal piece is key. And, um, you know, I think there is also a component in communications about, um, or maybe it's just in the nonprofit sector, about um, it's a little more inclusive. Marketing to some people smells like sales, and nonprofits tend not to identify with that term. Right. So communications can be a little, you know, socializes better, I think. There's a, I actually think I have seen organizations sort of shy away from this notion of marketing, right? So bo- so this word, I think, is kind of loaded. I've been on boards where people have said, this organization needs to be more focused on marketing. And the nonprofit staff feel like the corporate board members are shoving something down their throats that is... Um, ah, can I use Filthy. it? You know, inauthentic to what nonprofits are about. Maybe that's what you mean by salesy, right? So, you know, so you look at, and I think, and I, and I have seen this in, 
you know, we see this in each sector, but I can, for example, I can, I certainly saw it when I was at GLAD in the LGBT sector, larger organizations had the capacity to market more effectively. Mm-hmm. And that was looked upon with some, by some with a certain amount of disdain is why are you spending so much money marketing your organization and less it would, you know, isn't that money better served by investing it in program work? And I, the way that I describe it, if I can just digress for a second is uh, kids in high school who hand in book reports and there are some nonprofits that hand in book reports that are beautifully written. They're spot on. They are a plus work but they actually don't believe that time and energy should be spent on the cover. Mm. And then you have a classmate who has written, not, it's not a bad book report, it's a good book report, but it's probably not A-plus work. But the cover is outstanding, <laughs> right? And, and the grades come back, and they are not terribly dissimilar. And, and I feel like sometimes that that's how the nonprofit space and leaders, I think it's changing, but I do think that this notion of marketing feels loaded. It's like, why should I spend time on the book report cover when I should spend more time doing research to make sure that my book report is kick-ass? Right, right. It's like the concern that you're putting lipstick on a pig, perhaps. Um, yeah, something like that. But, you know, I would, I would say that uh, the best place to start, whether you, whether you like the word marketing or you like the word communications, is with a robust conversation, whether you're a board member or staff member, about um, what the work is in service of. What is, what's the goal or objective specifically you're trying to achieve with your marketing or communications? And, and um, I believe nonprofits must communicate for, as I think you do, for three essential reasons. The first is to raise money. Communicate, fundraising is a communications function. We tend to not think of it as under communications. Um, and typically the fundraisers are in charge of communications. But raising money is an in, important um, communications function. So are programs. You have to recruit people into your programs. You have to raise awareness about those programs. You have to make sure people understand what the mission is. That's a communications function. And then the third area is advocacy. And for some organizations, advocacy is legislative or political. For others, it's just being sort of a go-to resource on their, on their area in a community or you know, the place the media calls about a particular topic. So I think if you start by saying, what, what is the function of communications within your organization or the function of marketing? What's it in service of? And what are the specific objectives or goals we hope to achieve by getting better at it, then it, you know, it doesn't matter what you call it. Um, and you know, your, book report, your book report story is interesting to me because um, while I think everybody would agree that the substantive, well-written report should get the better grade, there is a reality to the fact that we live in a world where we need to um, make things palatable to the audiences we're trying to reach, whether we like it or not. 
Um, well, we have to I, get their attention I, and hold it. Right. I mean, if, uh, what, what's it from Field of Dreams? If you, if you build, <laughs> if you build it, it, they will come. Yeah. Right. That's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Right. Actually, it's, it's decidedly untrue with rebranding. <laughs> I, I often say with rebranding, think of rebranding as renovating your home. You know, it's going to be messy and disruptive. It's going to take longer and cost more than you want. It's, it's challenging. But um, where you start to raise money, raise awareness, recruit better, where you reap the benefits of that rebrand are in the campaigns that follow or the communications that follow where you get to invite all these people into your home. And now your home is gracious and welcoming and, and looks and feels the way you want it to look and feel. So it's easier to make those people um, not only come into your house, but you know, encourage them to stay and feel a genuine connection to you. So you can't just, you can't just rebrand and think you know, you're done. Um, you have to connect the dots and use that brand. Agreed. Um, so in, in, uh, so I, I also teach a class on, as I said, on nonprofit communications, uh, strategy. And in one of the early classes, I select five to six websites and trust me, I don't have to look very hard. And together as a group, we look at the homepage. It's a seminar class of about 24 kids and the students are given the opportunity based on the homepage of the website to explain what each of these organizations does and why it's important. So the process is not just instructive, like we actually end up getting like giddy, like silly laughing <laughs> because, because in some cases it's actually unintelligible. And, um, you know, you, you see some of this, I guess. And what do you think makes it so hard for nonprofits? It's, it's not really just about money and resources, is it? It's not necessarily about money and resources. I mean, I think it does come back to kind of a misunderstanding about what communications means or the power of communications. I'd, I'd say that happens for a couple of reasons. If you're not communicating well on your website, one reason is that you've been so busy tending to your programs that you are not tending to the organization. You know, it, it, a lot of times people in an organization find it a lot easier to tell the story of a program or an initiative or an event than to tell the organization's entire story. That's especially right. true in, in certain subsectors like the, the human services world, for instance. Um, I think another reason that happens is that a lot of organizations don't have a healthy practice of strategic planning and self-reflection. And um, in, in, uh, in my experience and also in some research we've done, the most effective brands are the ones that are expressions of a clear strategic plan, an organizational strategy. Right. Um, so if you're not clear where your organization is heading, it's very hard to articulate that well on your website. Um, third, third reason I think it sometimes happens and least common is life cycle. You know, that, that organizations just in early years really, um, they're kind of murky. They're sort of mucking around and, and that you can feel it when you look at their websites. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. So let's bring some of this to life for um, for the folks that are listening. What does it look like when it's working? Can you give me an example of work you've done with a client that sort of turned their communications from messy to thriving? Um, and as a follow-up to that, and I'll remind you, uh, how do you know when it's working and how do you measure the success and impact of it? So yeah. an example well, of a client that's, that where um, where it's clearly working and, and you had some success. 
Yeah, and 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 to to answer the the second part of your question first, I think you know in any in any important communications fun, you know, project or function or rebrand, you know it's working when you've defined your goals clearly up front and you achieve them. You know, if your goal in rebranding or your goal in launching a new initiative is to attract a new audience or build a deeper donor base with individuals or attract millennials and get them to make a first gift or the more you articulate what you're trying to do, why you're trying to do this, the more you can know if you've done it. Um, there, there are a lot of examples I've seen out there in the world and we have a whole bunch of case studies on our website, but, um, but one that I really am proud of is a small organization that we worked with a number of years ago. Um, when they came to us, they were called families of SMA. SMA is a, is a rare disease and they had some very specific reasons they needed to rebrand, the biggest of which was that they were trying to attract audiences who were not necessarily directly affected by SMA and encourage them to support some groundbreaking research they were, they were undertaking. So the reason I love this case study is that over the period of time we were working with them on a rebrand, we also helped them with a, with a year-end fundraising appeal and so we were able to kind of use the old brand and do some fundraising and see what kind of results they got with, you know, with a typical year-end appeal. And, um, and then the following year after the rebrand, we collaborated with them again on a new appeal that used the new brand. So the, the two appeals were very, very similar structurally, but one used old visuals and messaging, one used the new visuals and messaging specifically designed to reach and engage this broader audience, new audience. And um, not only did the new brand campaign significantly outperform the, the first campaign, I think it, I think it might have doubled the results. It was, it was a really significant growth over the previous year. But I think most importantly, when, when they dug into the data about who gave, there were a lot of new first-time donors, and many of them were not connected to SMA. So that was a real metric of success in terms of the point of building the brand. But what I think is most exciting with Cure SMA and with a lot of organizations is not necessarily one initiative. It's sort of how the comms team, the in-house team, or the leadership takes the new brand and brings it to life in everything, does, does what we talked about earlier in terms of lighting things up as if communications is a utility. And with that organization and with others, I've seen some really exciting staff-led initiatives to, um, you know, make things feel consistent, create experiences for donors and clients that are that are sort of really transformative and on brand that that deepen those relationships. And what I what I always love is when it's not just the work that they did you know, with us or any consultant, but more so the work they do themselves, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's the magic. Right. Um, sort of teaching them how to fish, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and helping people feel like they can have fun and do creative things that really benefit the organization that are not, um, not disruptive the way, you know, creating an anniversary year logo is actually really disruptive. You know, don't do that. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> don't do that. Write that down. Unless you're driving, then don't write it down. Don't, don't write that down. <laughs> um, I, I need to ask because I do think that there are a lot of organizations that are that look to try to reach outside of the usual suspects, whether it's a, you know, so I'm working with a client now that is their, um, uh, 
lion's share of their donors and stakeholders are attorneys, mm-hmm. right? And uh, how do you reach outside of it's a you know an impact litigation firm, and so they do legal work. <clears throat> so uh, I'm I'm intrigued by Cure SMA. What was the secret sauce about? What was the messaging? That in so I I don't even know what SMA is. Um, probably I'm lucky that I don't know it. Um, but what's how did you? What was the secret sauce of engaging somebody like me to give to a cause that I'm not touched by personally? Well, this goes back to something you you planted a teaser about earlier in this conversation, which is audiences, prioritizing right. audiences, and understanding your audience and. In that example, and in many examples, I would say the key to reaching and engaging a new audience is first really um, being clear who you are reaching and why you're reaching them. And, and then secondly, identifying the audiences that are most likely to be receptive to your messages. So, so um, in the digital world, there is a common practice of creating audience personas or user personas. And um, a lot of the organizations we work with um, or we see out there doing this well create donor personas, create client personas, and, and also do audience research to, ident- to identify the type of persona who might be most receptive. In the Cure SMA example, there was um, some indicator that a, a prospective new audience for them would be people who are not connected to SMA but actually were very motivated to give to scientific areas that ha- that were on the brink of breakthroughs. Oh, so, okay. so you might not be the target audience for Cure SMA, the rebranded organization. But if you were somebody who was, you know, really into funding breakthrough science, you, you might fit a persona of the person we we're trying to reach. And the messaging and a lot of the creative work um, was designed with with that person in mind. So it's not a it's not always um you know it's not always so one size fits all. I think it's really understanding the mindset of the target audience. Very very interesting. So we are talking to Sarah Durham, who is the um, founder of Big Duck. It is a uh, an organization that uh, helps nonprofits raise money, recruit for programs, and increase their visibility through smart communications. Sarah is the author of Brand Raising, How Nonprofits Raise Visibility and Money Through Smart Communications, and she is a a self-confessed total nonprofit communications nerd. So in this book, which I enjoyed very much, you talk about communicating on their terms and not yours. Um, I can tell you that in my four or five years of blogging, I've really, really come to understand that it's not about what I want to say, but it's what about nonprofit leaders really um, are looking to hear. And I I, I wonder if you could sort of tease that out for nonprofit leaders. How do you communicate? Because I think very often communications is seen as how do I tell people about the great things we are doing? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first of all, I'm glad you liked the book. And um, I, I think that that's exactly where you're starting from, you know, telling people about exactly, you know, what we are doing is exactly um, the definition of what I would call organization centric communications as opposed to right. audience centric communications. So, uh, so an organization centric way of communicating would be to say, 
Um, we are a workforce development organization that um, helps, you know, 150 people a year uh, do X, Y, Z. Um, an audience-centric way to say it would be um, every year we help 150 amazing people, you know, find the job of a lifetime, right? And, and yes. the difference between those two things is typically about speaking to the value of what the target audience wants from you, as okay. opposed to describing the activities that you do. So a lot of organizations you know, use language that basically just describes activities. We do this, we do that. And they miss connecting the dots to the value or the outcomes of that work. You know? And particularly if your target audience is a prospective donor, you know, why should that prospective donor care? What's the value that they find in your work? What's the, <laughs> what's the thing that fires them up to support you? That's what you should be writing about. Yep. I, I learned about this when uh, my uh, digital guru, Scott Paley, who's the principal of Abstract Edge, uh, we started my business Facebook page and um, we began to curate content that was not mine. So that in the newsfeed, it became something people wanted in their newsfeed because it offered information, um, curated content that included some of mine, but also articles that someone might have missed about something going on in the sector. And if you start to think about what it is your target audience is needing and looking for, then they're much more likely to like your Facebook page uh, and be engaged in your work. Absolutely. And I think also in the nonprofit sector, when you're an expert in something, you know, if, you, if you've been deeply embedded in your work, thinking about your stuff for a long time, it can be hard to remember what it's like for people on the outside. You know? yeah. And I, I think it's one of the real value, uh, value adds of working with a consultant or a freelancer or an agency is that somebody on the outside helping you translate all this like really in-depth stuff into something more accessible and, and more... Um, value-driven, you know, for yeah. the audience. So uh, the Heath brothers in Made to Stick, they call yeah. it the curse, of, the curse of knowledge. That it, exactly. When you, is that you know so much, it's hard to imagine not knowing it, um, and that it impacts how you communicate. So yeah. we're just about out of time, and I want to just uh, 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 play one more game with you. I want you to imagine that I'm a brand-new executive director, and I'm really glad I'm not a brand-new executive director. <laughs> you, you've been there and done that. <laughs> I've been there and done that. Um, not a lot of money. My bills are getting paid. I have very few staff. I do not have a communications director. Maybe I even have one of those websites that my students laughed about in my class. Uh, there's some last words of advice for me. How do I get started? My board is convinced that this is the biggest priority. Are they right? What kinds of steps might I take first? Well, um, I want to give you a resource. If you're that new executive director or if you're a board member, um, you know, or, or even if you're at a, an organization with more capacity and you're, you're rethinking how to manage communications. Um, a few months ago, we released an ebook, and um, it was the result of some research we did collaboratively with Kivi Leroux Miller, who is the uh, powerhouse behind the nonprofit marketing guide. And what we did was we, Kivi and Big Duck, collaborated on some research about why organizations who think they're good at communications think they're good at communications. What's going on in these organizations? And um, 
So we identified five success factors that that strong organizations or strong comms teams have. And uh, you can download the ebook for free on the Big Duck website, which is bigduckNYC.com. But um, but one of the biggest things was um, hiring pros and setting clear priorities. There were there were five success factors, but those are the two things that if you are that ED with limited resources, you should do. The first is you know priorities, right? What what does communications need to help you with? Is it in service of fundraising? Is it in service of recruitment? Is it about um, getting better known in a particular um, you know issue area from an advocacy point of view? So clear priorities is the first thing everybody can do, and that can be ED led. And the second is hire pros. And what I mean by that is even if you don't have the capacity to hire full-time staff, odds are good you're going to be maybe working with some pro bono consultants. Maybe you've got somebody on your board who's going to bring some resources to the table. Maybe you're going to hire a freelancer or a consultant. Don't hire people just because they say they can help. Hire people who have a track record of success in nonprofit communications. So, um, so if you've got a great board member who's got a you know wildly successful for-profit business and they're willing to donate some resources from their in-house comms team to you, that's awesome. Pair them with a freelance consultant who is a nonprofit communications and marketing expert who can help layer in that perspective. Nonprofit communications really are different. The, the audiences are much more diverse and complicated typically than in a for-profit setting. And, um, and I, I've seen over and over again, um, projects go wrong where a very for-profit way of marketing just kind of doesn't work in nonprofit communication. So hire, hire pros and prioritize. There you go. Excellent. Um, Sarah, I just want to say where you are um, sadly out of time, but I want to thank you for helping our listeners think about communications in a really sort of different and powerful way. And it is not a surprise that you have a thriving business and that your wisdom is in high demand. So thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Joan. Back at (laughs) you. And and also I want to, before we wrap up, I also really do want to encourage listeners who like this topic, if they haven't done so, to go back and listen to your podcast interview with Sean Gibbons of the Communications Network. When I listened to that podcast, I was thinking about uh, philosophically how uh, aligned, I think, our perspectives are. And, and, and he cites a, a number of great resources in that podcast. So that's a, that's a nice tool, too. Yes, absolutely. And on my blog, uh, when we post the podcast, we always put links to any resources that are mentioned during the course of the conversation. So you have access to those as well. Um, Again, um, Sarah's website, uh, her firm is called Big Duck. Her website is at bigduckNYC.com. We will definitely put a link towards that ebook on our blog. Uh, And, and I really hope that Sarah's insights will add value to the important work that you as nonprofit leaders do. Um, and last thing, I just, uh, as always, really just want to say thanks for the work that you do. Um, there are just way too many people uh, who are sitting in the stands. It's one of my pet peeves. You've actually chosen to do something to get out of the stands and onto the field. And for this, we're all very grateful. So take care. We'll see you next time. 
Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.